Well, welcome back to our study of the book of Ephesians. If you would open up your Bibles with me to Ephesians 4, we're going to be in verses 7 through 16. Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. And the title of this sermon is The Church Growth Model. Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. Last week, we learned that we had hit the turning point of the entire book at the beginning of chapter 4, moving from the indicative, or who God is and what he's done, to the imperative, or the therefore do this. We learned that the first application of the gospel is that we're all the same. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one Father. We're all the same. Today, we'll learn the other side of the coin, so to speak. We'll learn that while in many ways we're all the same, we're also very different from one another. And that's by design. In other words, a healthy church is marked by spiritual unity and spiritual diversity. That's the main point of today's text. With that in mind, I want to begin today by asking us a question. Who are the ministers of the church, and what is their purpose? Who are the ministers of the church, and what is their purpose? Think on that one. Who comes to mind when you think about the ministers of the church? With that in mind, let's dive into the text. Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Our two main points for today are these. Point one, the conquering king in verses 7 through 10, and then point two, a gifted and growing church in verses 11 through 16. So point one the conquering king. I want us to begin this passage and this section of the passage 
by understanding the context of Psalm 68, which was read earlier in our service. That's what Paul is actually drawing from here. Psalm 68 is the background to these first three verses. Uh, While we read the entire psalm earlier for our scripture reading, we've got to understand what exactly it is that it's describing. Kent Hughes notes that in verse 7 of that psalm, God is pictured as marching in triumph before all Israel after the exodus. He says, when he comes to Sinai, the earth shakes under his feet. Verse 8. Then in verses 11 through 14, kings and armies are described as fleeing before him while his people sleep peacefully before their fires. Finally, in verses 16 and 17, from Mount Sinai, God sets his sight on Mount Zion and moves with his, quote, tens of thousands and thousands of thousands of chariots up the slopes of Jerusalem in victory, leading captives in his train and receiving gifts. From men. In other words, Psalm 68 is a victory procession of a conquering king. Understand this. When a king would go to war and win, the whole city would come out and a parade would ensue with majestic and loud fanfare. A parade of victory. The captives would be led along with all of the spoil that the conquering king now possessed. This is the imagery that Paul chooses to use here in Ephesians 4, as he paraphrases Psalm 68, verse 18. There's a conquering king who graciously gives gifts. All right, with that picture in mind, let's look again at our text. Look at verses 7 through 8. Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and he quotes Psalm 68, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. First of all, I want us to see how Paul's using this word grace here. In this context, He's not talking about saving grace, but serving grace. He's using the word grace to speak of gifting. And he does this same thing in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, which says this, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So grace in terms of gifting. In fact, he uses the word grace in this way in Ephesians itself. We saw this in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, which says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So, What's he saying here in Ephesians 4, 7? He's saying Christ, the conquering king, gave gifts to who? Each one of us. Each one of us. See this. He he doesn't say that gifts were given to some of us or to the really special professional Christians. No. He says to each one. One of us. 
Are you part of each one of us? Yes, you are. There is no such thing as an ungifted Christian. Do you hear that? There's no such thing as an ungifted Christian. Individuals don't possess all the gifts, but everyone is gifted in some way by Christ, the conquering king. This will come into play later in our text. I also want to call our attention to the first three words of verse 8. It says, therefore, it says. Therefore, it says. This is awesome. Remember that Paul's quoting Psalm 68, the Old Testament. When was the Old Testament written? A long time ago. In the past, right? What tense is the verb in verse 8? Present tense. Therefore, it, the Old Testament, says. It's kind of under the radar, but Paul's saying that although the scriptures were written in the past, they still speak today in the present. This is gloriously true. The Bible isn't just a dusty old relic of the past. It's living, active. It's abundantly relevant in this very moment. So the conquering king gives gifts to every believer. But how did this king, Christ, how did he go about becoming a conquering king? That's what Paul explains in verses 9 and 10. Look in your text. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Most of your translations probably have verses 9 and 10 in parentheses to show that Paul's kind of giving a a little bit of a side note here. It's almost as if he quoted Psalm 68, verse 18, and then felt the need to just explain it a little bit. So what's he saying? He's saying that Jesus became a conquering king through his incarnation and then the ascension. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He became flesh, a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. He died a horrific death on the cross. He descended. Then he rose from the grave. He defeated sin, Satan, and death. He led the victory parade with the spoils of war. He was exalted to the right hand of the Father, where one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He ascended. This is Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, right? Philippians 2, 6 through 11 says, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how did Jesus become a gift-giving, conquering king? He descended and then ascended. He has dominion over earth and over heaven. So what are the purposes of these gifts given by Christ? Point two, a gifted and growing church. Look with me at verse 11. It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. In this case, the gifts are people. Now, as a side note, there are several other texts in Scripture that refer to specific spiritual gifts. And those certainly aren't out of the picture here either. There are five lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. I think we've got them up here. Ephesians 4.11, 1 Corinthians 12.8-10, 1 Corinthians 12.28-30, Romans 12.6-8, and 1 Peter 4.11. The important thing to know is that these lists aren't exhaustive. There are only 20 different gifts listed in these texts. And the lists aren't even the same. Each of these lists is for a specific context. And in the context of our text here, in Ephesians, Paul lists four, maybe five, gifts. Or gifted people that are given to the church. First, apostles. Apostles. We discuss this in chapter 1, verse 1, extensively. So uh, I'll simply say that I understand Paul's usage here to refer to capital A apostles. Capital A apostles, those who saw the risen Lord, who were commissioned by Christ himself. Apostles. Second, prophets. Prophets would include Old Testament prophets, but also those who preached in association with the apostles. And here's what I want us to see. These first two gifts, or offices, apostles and prophets, they were foundational to the church to get her started. And then they were replaced by the Old and New Testament scriptures. In other words, these offices don't continue past the apostolic age. F.F. Bruce comments this. He says, The apostles, as an order of the ministry of the church were not perpetuated beyond the apostolic age. But the various functions they discharged did not lapse with their departure, but continued to be performed by others, notably the evangelist and the pastors and the teachers. So there's kind of a a passing of the baton, so to speak, from apostles and prophets to these other gifts that we're about to talk about. So the first two gifts, apostles and prophets, were foundational but Christ gave more gifts to continue into the future. So the third one, evangelists. Evangelist. I love this. One commentator calls evangelists the obstetricians of the church. Those gifted in bringing new births. Hear this loud and clear. Every Christian, every Christian has the joyous right and responsibility to evangelize. That's one thing that 
an evangelist would be equipping the saints to do in verse 12, right? We're all called to that in the Great Commission. But an evangelist is someone who's particularly gifted in this area to be able to boldly and plainly share the gospel with not yet believers and believers alike. Many of you are evangelists, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. You inspire me and encourage me and spur me on to regularly share the gospel myself. I want to make sure that we really hear this this morning. An evangelist is not, hear this really clear, an evangelist is not a paid professional or someone with slicked back hair and a funny accent on TBN. No, evangelists are normal Christians who are particularly gifted at sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Only two people in scripture are called evangelists. Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5, and Philip in Acts 21, 8. And he's a deacon. Evangelists are amazing gifts that are given to the church. I genuinely pray for more evangelists here at Santa Cruz Baptist. In fact, if you are an evangelist, if you see yourself gifted in that way, I'd love to chat with you after the service. Come find me. I'd love to encourage you and pray for you and resource you and equip you as much as possible. So, apostles and prophets and evangelists. Fourth, shepherd teachers or shepherds and teachers. There's debate here on whether this is two people or one. Uh, the word here is poimain, and it's the word for pastor. Poimain, pastor, which we uh, understand to be synonymous with elder or bishop or overseer. Uh, we see all three of these words used interchangeably in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3 says this. It says, So I exhort the elders, presbyteros, among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Verse 2, shepherd. That's that word, poimain or pastor. Shepherd the flock of God among, that is among you, exercising oversight, episkopos. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. What I want us to see there is that, that Peter doesn't appear to be talking about three different people here in 1 Peter 5. But using three different words to describe the same office of pastor or elder. Poimain, or pastor... Shepherd is the word that Paul uses here in Ephesians 4. And one of the primary functions of an elder is teaching. In fact, teaching is a qualification for elder. In 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 2, it says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able 
to teach. We see in scripture that the role of elder in the local church is to lead, feed, guide, and protect. Lead, feed, guide, and protect. So, while not all teachers are elders, all elders are teachers. For this reason, it seems like there's either heavily overlap, or this is one office of shepherd, pastor, teacher. Here's the big takeaway. Here's what I want us to see about these gifts that are given to the church. Each one of them, in their own way, are gifted in communicating the word of God. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers. That's what grows the church. The word of God being faithfully taught. The saying goes, what you win them with is what you win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. Hear this. If we win people with entertainment, that's what we'll win them to. If we win people with gimmicks, we'll win them to shallowness. But if we win people with the word of God, we'll win them to the word of God. When the word of God is faithfully proclaimed, Church is grown. And I'm not talking about numerical growth. I'm talking about depth and substance. And look at what the purpose of this word ministry is in verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ. Do you see that? You remember the question from earlier. Who are the ministers in the church? The saints. Who are the saints? Christians. Again, not paid professionals. Not pastors. Normal Christians. You. This is beautiful. My role as pastor is not to do all of the ministry in the church. It's primarily to equip you to be a minister, for building up the body of Christ. See this. In the body of Christ, every member is a minister. And guess what? We've already learned in this text that you're all gifted by Christ, the conquering king. This is how the body grows. If, if I try to do all the ministry in this church, I'll probably die trying or burn out, or stunt the growth of this church. But this isn't God's design, is it? There's so much ministry to be done. There's music to be led, people to be served in the community, diaconal ministry, pro-life ministry, children's ministry, foster and adoption ministry, mercy ministry, counseling ministry, hospitality ministry, student ministry, nursery ministry, outreach ministry, prayer ministry, women's ministry, men's ministry, missions ministry. I could keep going. In the body of Christ, every member is a gifted minister. Do you understand that? The church isn't a pyramid with the pastor perched at the top and everyone else serving his interests. To use another analogy from Kent Hughes, the church isn't a bus with the pastor doing all of the driving. 
while the congregation just sleeps comfortably behind him. Not at all. No, shepherd teachers exist to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the glory of God. In a healthy church, members are ministering all over the place. And pastors are there to encourage them, to equip them, and to resource them. That's my hope and prayer for us as a church. And I just want to encourage us in this today. More and more and more things are happening in this church that I had nothing to do with. Praise God for that. This is one of my greatest joys in ministry right now. I find out all the time that that one of you took a meal to someone or, or did some act of service that encouraged someone that I had nothing to do with. That's amazing. Even more, in the early days of this church, so many people called Santa Cruz Baptist Drew's Church. I haven't heard that in at least a year. I hope I never hear it again. This is your church. You are the church. And each of you are gifted ministers called to build up the body of Christ. Let's continue on. Verse 13. So what does this ministry of building up the body of Christ accomplish? Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Unity and maturity. First, unity. Notice he says unity of the faith. This is what we talked about last Sunday. Unity in the gospel and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Sound familiar? One Lord, one faith. When every member is a minister and is equipped for that work, unity is attained. Second, maturity. What does Christian maturity entail? First, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, maturity is Christ-likeness. Your life resembles Christ's. You're studying the scriptures, following his way of life. That's discipleship. If you're not in a discipling relationship, I beg you, I encourage you to get in one. All of us, and I do mean all of us, all of us should be discipling someone and be being discipled with the goal of Christ-likeness. That's part of Christian maturity. But there's more. Look at verse 14. He says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So a second part of Christian maturity is being doctrinally solid. What is doctrine? Doctrine is Christian teaching or instruction. Doctrine is such a good thing. And unfortunately, it's commonly disparaged or looked down upon as something that's less spiritual than simply loving Jesus. Think about this. Without doctrine, 
how do you know which Jesus to love? How do you know what it looks like to love Jesus? What is love? Does Jesus care how he's loved? Yes, he does. And the answers to all of those questions are doctrine. Knowing God. Knowing his ways. Knowing his promises. And look at what happens when you're doctrinally solid in our text. You're no longer a child. You're not pushed around by waves or by wind. Hear this. We should always be growing as Christians. We should always be reforming more and more into the image of God. But our doctrine shouldn't change. I'll caveat that and say, I hope I'm still learning things when I'm 90 years old. I hope that I'll I'll always let the scriptures dictate exactly what I believe, no more and no less. But if our doctrine is always changing, there's a good chance that it's the culture around us and our circumstances, the, the waves and the wind that's guiding our belief and not the word of God. A great question to ask yourself doctrinally is this. Has anyone believed this doctrine throughout Christian history? And if so, how recently? Has anyone believed this doctrine throughout Christian history? And if so, how recently? There are lots of winds of doctrine that are relatively new in Christian history. And suspiciously, only present in the United States. That kind of thing should give us pause. Immature believers are dangerously exposed to the latest thing. If you're solid doctrinally, you won't be swayed by these half-truths like a child. One commentator says this. He says, this is the way that the immature believer is. Fickle unstable, gullible, easily influenced by the latest book or preacher or fad, vulnerable to the wolves of which there are plenty. Do you remember the role of shepherd teacher? To lead, feed, guide, and protect. In other words, the shepherd teacher is stoking Christian maturity through teaching doctrine and protecting from wolves. If you're interested in dipping your toes into doctrine, this book is a great start. It's called Sound Doctrine, How a Church Grows in the Love and Holiness of God by Bobby Jameson. Um, It's amazing. So first, three people to come talk to me after the service. I've got free copies for you. Great way to get started on doctrine. So Christian maturity involves unity in the faith, solid doctrine, And look at verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So as kind of a contrast to the immaturity of being tossed to and fro, Paul says that a mature Christian speaks the truth in love. Truth and love. Truth and love. These two should never be separated. We should teach the Bible faithfully. And we should love with all of our hearts. 
It's not loving to teach or to speak what's not true, even when the culture disagrees with the church on a particular issue. But when we speak the truth, we do so in love, with a loving posture. So before speaking the truth, ask yourself, what's my spirit in saying this? What's my motive for saying this? Am I simply saying this to win an argument or to run over someone or to shame them or to self-righteously judge them and move on? Or am I saying this out of genuine love for their soul and love for Christ? Do I even care about them? Truth and love. Finally, look at the result of all of this in verse 16. I'm going to start reading in the middle of verse 15. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There are two huge truths for us to grasp in this verse. Number one, dependence. And number two, shared responsibility. Let's start with dependence. Notice this. A healthy church isn't an independent church. Not at all. A healthy church is made up of Christians who are dependent upon Christ. He's the head. It's impossible for us to live unconnected from Christ. He's the vine. We are the branches. So when we cease abiding in him, we cease to live spiritually. We're completely dependent on him for everything. And so here's a diagnostic question for us this morning. What am I doing to abide in Christ? What am I doing to abide in Christ? Or in the language of our text, to be connected with Christ as our head. This pursuit, this, this abiding, this, this connection to Christ, it's a daily thing. A, a healthy Christian and a healthy Christian church pursues abiding in Christ as a daily rhythm. We have to be intentional about this. So, how do we connect with Christ? The spiritual disciplines, prayer, scripture intake, worship, fasting, silence and solitude, journaling, evangelism, learning. These are the known paths that Christ is on. So how are we intentionally pursuing dependence on Christ through connection to him? Commit yourself to these things. That's where Jesus is found. But this isn't the only dependence we see here in our text, is it? So Christ is the head. How strange, think about this. If Christ is the head. How strange would it be to see an arm or a toe connected directly to the head without any connection to anything else? That'd be odd. It'd be kind of weird, huh? Arm growing out of the head. It's the same thing in the body of Christ. We're meant to be dependent on Christ and dependent on one another. 
meaningfully connected. Not an arm growing out of the head, but an arm connected to a body. In the body of Christ, there's no Lone Ranger Christians. No me and Jesus theology. Not at all. Mature Christians are members of the body. This is why we strongly believe in membership here. We believe that part of uh, being a healthy Christian is to be part of a local church. If being a member, if, if being a member of a, a local church is here, then great. If it's another gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church in town, great. Being meaningfully connected somewhere is vital to Christian life. I just want to encourage us this morning, don't float. Don't attempt to be an arm connected to the head, but not to anyone else. The second truth we see here in verse 16, there's dependence, and then second, there's shared responsibility. Another reason that membership is so vital to the body. Look at the end of the verse. How does the body grow? How does the body grow? Through really gifted, charismatic, talented pastors with great vision? No. Through entertainment and great programs? No. When each part is working properly. Do you see that? The body grows when each part is working properly, and it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body of Christ grows in width and in depth when each part is working properly. When each saint is equipped for the work of ministry and is ministering to one another and to the world. Every member of the church has a shared responsibility to make the body grow. Understand this. A a consumeristic way of viewing the church is simply to say, Uh, I'm I'm not going to gather with the church, and I guess I'm just missing some sermons. I guess I'll just catch up on my favorite online preacher's sermons. They're better than my pastor's anyway. Friend, how does that make the body grow? It doesn't. The body is missing you. Frankly, other than stewarding our building and future well, I couldn't care less about attendance or numbers here. But when you're not here, the church, the people of God, they're missing something. We walk with a limp when you're not here. I want us to see that. We're not able to grow properly because we're missing your ministry. Do we understand that this morning? Being a faithful member of a church is to say, this isn't about me. It's about the body of Christ. It's about helping the body grow into maturity. It's about taking the gifts that God has given me and ministering to those who God has connected me to. The conquering king has given you gifts, but they're not for you. They're for him. They're meant to be used to minister to others for God's glory. In closing, I'll simply ask one question that I want you to prayerfully and thoughtfully consider. And here it is. 
Am I doing what God has made me to do? Or am I neglecting his gift? Am I doing what God has made me to do? Or am I neglecting his gift? And this isn't meant to be a question of judgment or of shame. If you are doing what God has made you to do, praise God. I want to encourage you in that this morning. Keep going. How can I fan that into flame even more? If you are neglecting his gift, today's the day to shift gears. Take what he's given you and invest it in the kingdom through his body, the church. Get equipped. Be a minister. Be a member of a church. And help grow the body into unity and maturity. Let's pray.